Hiya, welcome to another episode of Dark and Spooky, a horror podcast with me, Miss Dark and Spooky, aka The Girl Next Door. Today's episode is going to be Unsolved Mysteries Part 5, the last part. So are we all sat comfortable? Let's get into them. Included husband and wife Andreas and Gazilia Gruber, their widowed daughter Victoria Gabriel, Victoria's children Gazilla and Joseph, and the family's maid Maria Baumgartner. Two year old Joseph was killed in his crib, and Maria was killed in her bed, while the rest of the family was then murdered in the barn and stacked on top of each other. Upon the discovery, authorities concluded that the murderer actually lived on the farm for six days after they committed the crime. Even after the family had died, cattle were still being fed, meals were being eaten in the kitchen, neighbours reported seeing smoke rising from the chimney, and the family dog was tied up to a post when the mailman came on Saturday. The bodies were discovered the next day. What makes this crime even more chilling was that Maria was actually hired the same day she was killed, replacing the previous maid who had quit six months earlier due to the house being haunted. She reported to the family hearing footsteps in the attic and voices. Around the time the previous maid had quit, the Gruber family had also begun to hearing voices from the attic. Andreas had also noticed a set of house keys had gone missing an unfamiliar newspaper in the house that he had never seen before, plus scratches on the family's tool shed like someone had tried to pick the lock. He had also reported seeing a pair of unfamiliar footsteps leading from the woods towards the back entrance of the family's home. Despite repeated arrests, no murderer has ever been found and the files were closed in 1955 and the house was demolished. collapsing and dying shortly after. The victims included 12-year-old Mary Kellerman, 27-year-old Mary Rayner, 31-year-old Mary McFarland, 35-year-old Paula Prince, 27-year-old Adam Janus, 
25-year-old Stanley Janus and 19-year-old Teresa Janus. Adam Janus ingested Eternal and died at the hospital. When the family came back to mourn, Stanley Janus and his wife Teresa took Eternal and died, making it three deaths in the same family on the same day. However, this tragedy is what led investigators to connect the dots. Cook County investigator Nick Fishos compared the Janus Tannel bottle to Mary Cowleman's and noticed they had one similarity, a control number. Mike Charlie, 2880. Deputy medical examiner Edmund Donoghue asked Fishos to smell the bottles and Fishos replied that they both smelled like almonds. The poison cyanide is known to smell like bitter almonds, which in large amounts can cause seizures, cardiac arrest and respiratory failure. The blood tests on all the victims showed that they had taken a dose a hundred to a thousand times the lethal amount. Donaghy spoke to an attorney from Johnson & Johnson, Town Hall's partner company, and a after all the victims were buried on October 1st, 1982, that the Tannehill bottles were in internationally poisoned with potassium cyanide. Immediately over 31 million bottles of Tannehill were recalled by the manufacturer and were issued warnings. They also offered to replace recalled bottles with new bottles and offered a $100,000 reward to anyone who may have any information on the perpetrator. The precautions cost the company over a hundred million dollars. There were several more copycat deaths across the United States after the initial incident had occurred. This led to the invention of safety seals that you see on medicine bottles today. And to this day, no suspect has ever been charged or convicted of the poisonings. six-year-old daughter John Bennett Ramsey on the back staircase inside the Ramsey home. This prompted her to call the police at 5.52am to report John Bennett as missing. The only people inside the house were John Ramsey, her father, Patsy, her mother and her brother Burke. Oddly enough, John Bennett's body was found inside the home in the utility room in the basement less than eight hours later. The body was found by John and duct tape was across, found across her mouth and a smooth cord around her neck. When police arrived, it was suspect that the crime scene was heavily compromised due to multiple people arriving at the scene. The police had also claimed that they had not searched the house after Patsy's initial call because there was no reason to believe that John Bennett was in the house. 
At the time of her death, John Bennett was known as a child beauty queen superstar, having won at least five high-end child beauty competitions. Her death was ultimately ruled a homicide. The autopsy stated that John Bennett's official cause of death was axophobia by strangulation associated with trauma. Due to John Bennett's beauty queen popularity and her mother be being a former beauty queen, the case caused nationwide and media interest. Today, the crime is still unsolved and remains an open investigation with the Boulder Police Department. a serial killer known as the Zodiac Killer terrorised Northern California. There were at least five victims, but later on the murderer would claim he killed at least 37 people in total. On December 20th, 1968, on Lake Herman Road in Valdeo, 17-year-old David Faraday and 16-year-old Betty Lee Jensen were shot and killed while sitting in a parked car in a gravel parking area. By the time police arrived, Betty was found dead, but David was still alive. Unfortunately, he would die on the way to the hospital. This was the first murder that the Zodiac Killer conducted and got away with. The Zodiac's next crime would happen on July 4th, 1969, in Blue Rock Springs Park, only a few minutes away from the previous crime. The Zodiac Killer approached a parked car with a flashlight and then murdered 22-year-old Darlene Farron and 19-year-old Michael Magu. Both were still alive when found, but only Magu would survive. He was able to describe the shooter as a young white male, 26 to 30 years old, a stocky build, 200 pounds or larger, about 5 foot 8 with light brown curly hair and a large face. Within an hour, the police received a phone call from someone who claimed to be the shooter and the shooter in the Lake Herman Road murders. On August 1st, 1969, the San Francisco Chronicle, the San Francisco Exclaimer and the Valigio Herald all received a handwritten letter from someone who claimed to be the shooter. The letters revealed specific details about the killings to prove that the writer was indeed the murderer. All the letters were signed with a circle with a cross through it, the symbol that would eventually be known as the mark of the Zodiac Killer. Also included in the letter were three different codes that the Zodiac Killer demanded to be printed in newspapers or else he would kill again. The Zodiac Killer said that the cracked codes would reveal his identity. On August 4th, 1969, another letter was received that started with the phrase saying, This is the Zodiac speaking, marking the first time the killer referred to himself as the Zodiac. On August 8th, the code was cracked by a couple in Salinas, California. 
the code red. I like killing because it's so much fun. It's more fun than killing wild game in the forest because man is the most dangerous animal of all to kill. Something gives me the most thrilling experience. It's even better than getting your rocks off with a girl. The best part of it is that when I die, I will be reborn in paradise and those I have killed will become my slaves. I will not give you my name because you will slow down or stop my collecting of slaves for the afterlife. After claiming three more lives and causing nationwide terror, the Zodiac Killer wrote his final letter on January 29th 1974. Concluding the letter was with a new score, me equals 37, SFPD equals zero. The true identity of the killer has never been found. dark streets of the east end of London, better known as the Whitechapel district, lived a serial killer that would go down in history as Jack the Ripper. Even though the Whitechapel district was known for its violence and crime, the string of murders conducted by Jack the Ripper would terrorise the public like no one has ever seen before. He was described as a madman with no clear motive. Even though his most famous murders only included five women, Known as the Conical Five, many theories suggest that he claimed the lives of up to 11. All the victims of the Conical Five were prostitutes, as it was common for women who lived in the Whitechapel district to take on as a means to survive. All five killings took place within a mile of each other from August 7th to September 10th, 1888. Several other murders occurring around that time period have also been investigated as the work of Le Leather Apron, another nickname given to the murderer. A number of letters were allegedly sent by the killer to the London Metropolitan Police Service, often known as Scotland Yard, taunting officers about his gruesome activities and speculating on murders to come. The name Jack the Ripper originates from a letter which is famously known now as the From Hell letter that was published at the time of the attacks. Despite countless investigations claiming deficient evidence of the brutal, the brutal killer's identity, their true name and motive are still unknown. <laughs> Thirteen, twenty-one-year-old Canadian tourist 
Elisa Lam checked into the Cecil Hotel in downtown Los Angeles. When she never checked out on February 1st, nor had contacted her parents, the Los Angeles Police Department was contacted. On February 19th, 18 days from the last time she was seen, Lam's body was found floating and naked in a water tank on the roof of the Cecil Hotel. Her body was found due to hotel guests complaining about the hotel's water pressure. One couple even reported that the water was coming out black and had a bad taste. According to the hotel's manager, when Lam first checked in, she was staying in a hostel-style room with other travellers, but later was moved to her own private room due to complaints from her roommates about odd behaviour. The last time she was seen was on surveillance footage on the hotel's elevator. The footage showed Lam acting strange and particular, almost like she was hiding. She also moved her hands in a strange way and it looked like she was talking to someone who was out of the security camera's view. After her body and the surveillance footage was found, it was suggested she was on some sort of hallucinogenic drug. Even though Lam took four different medications for her bipolar disorder, toxicology studies reported that there was no trace of any drugs or alcohol that could have contributed to her death. There was also a theory that she was murdered and died as a result of drowning, but the autopsy reported showed no evidence of trauma. To this day, no one knows how she was able to access the roof or climb into the water tank and shut the £20 lid by herself. Collected very little information. 
The few recollections of the driver and wagon were vague and useless. The NYPD was able to reconstruct the bomb and its fuse mechanism, but there was much to debate about the nature of the explosive. However, the most promising lead had actually come prior to the explosion. A mailman had found four crudely spelled and printed flyers in the Wall Street area from a group calling itself the American Arsonists Fighters that demanded the release of political prisoners. The letters seemed similar to the ones used the previous year in two bombing campaigns which were led by Italian architects. The Bureau investigated up and down the East Coast to trace the printing of these flyers but were unsuccessful. Based on the bomb attacks over the previous decade, the Bureau initially suspected followers of the Italian architect Luigi Galini had committed the crime, but the case couldn't be proved and Galini had already fled the country. Over the next three years, hot leads turned cold and promising trails turned into dead ends. In the end, the bombers were not identified. Dylan immediately notified the West Los Angeles Police Station 
The clothes included a coat and trousers of blue herringbone tweed, a brown and white shirt, white jockey shorts, tan socks and tan moccasin shoes about size 8. However, the clothes gave no clue about the identity of their owner. Although many suspects were named, no authorities were able to identify the Black Dahlia's killer and the mystery has gone unsolved for over 70 years. A man identified as Daniel Cooper bought a $20 one-way ticket on Northwest Islands on flight 305 from Portland, Oregon to Seattle, Washington. Cooper was described as being in his mid-40s, wearing a business suit, an overcoat, brown shoes, a white shirt and a black tie. He also carried a briefcase and a brown paper bag. Before the flight took off, he ordered a bourbon and soda from a flight attendant. After the plane was airborne, Cooper handed the flight attendant a note. At first, she just put it in her pocket without looking at it, but then Cooper told her, Miss, you better look at that note. I have a bomb. Cooper then told her the bomb was in his briefcase and asked her to sit next to him. He opened the briefcase to reveal six red cord sticks surrounded by an array of wires. Cooper told the flight attendant to write down everything he was saying and then take it to the captain. The note said, I want $200,000 by 5pm in cash exclusively in $20 bills. Put in a knapsack. I want two back parachutes and two front parachutes. When we land, I want a fuel truck ready to refuel. No funny stuff or I'll do the job. FBI agents assembled the ransom money from several Seattle area banks and Seattle police obtained the parachutes from a local skydiving school. When Cooper claimed his demands were met, he allowed all passengers and some of the crew to exit the airplane. Cooper told the remaining crew to refuel the plane and chart a course from Mexico City while staying below 10,000 feet. During the flight, Cooper put on a dark pair of wrap round sunglasses which will make it into the official sketch and become famous to anyone investigating the case. A little after 8pm and somewhere in between Seattle and Nevada, Cooper jumped out of the rear door of the plane with two of the parachutes and the money. He was never seen again. Despite an expansive manhunt and over 45 years of searching, no conclusions have been made as the man's identity or his fate after he jumped. It is called one of the greatest cold cases in FBI and US history.
December 1948, a body was found on Somerton Beach in Adelaide, Australia. The body was a man who was dressed impeccably in a suit with polished shoes and his head was slumped against a wall. Authorities thought the case of death was heart failure or more likely poisoning, but no trace of poison was found in the autopsy. There wasn't a wallet or any type of identification on the man and all the tags from his clothing were cut out. The fingerprints that the authorities took of him were also unidentifiable. They even put a photo of the body in the newspapers and still no one would identify who the man was. Four months later, after the body was found, detectives found a hidden pocket that was sewn on the inside of his trousers. Inside the pocket was a rolled up piece of paper from a rare book called the Rubitat. The piece of paper had the words Tamin Shud, on which it means it has ended. After months of looking for the exact book, authorities decided to bury the Somerton man without identification, although a cast was taken of the bust and he was embalmed to preserve him. Eight months later, a man walked into the police station. He claimed that just after the body was found, he found a copy of the Rubidat in the back of his car that he kept parked near Somerton Beach. He thought nothing of it until he read about the search in a newspaper article. Sure enough, the book had part of the final page that was torn and it matched the piece of paper that was found in the Somerton man's trousers. Inside the book were a phone number and some sort of strange code. The phone number led the authorities to a woman named Jessica Thompson who lived nearby. During her interview, she was very evasive and even claimed she was going to faint when she saw the bust of the Somerton man, but denied knowing him. However, she did say she did sell the book to a man named Alfred Boxall. Unfortunately, Alfred Boxall was still very much alive at the time and still had the copy of the rubber hat that Jessica had sold him. The code that was found ended up being even more unhelpful and as of today, it is still yet to be cracked. To this day, the man on Simpson Beach has yet to be identified. If you've got your own ghost stories, experiences or movie recommendations, please don't forget you can send them in to me at darkandspooky13 at gmail.com. If you can also, please um, leave a review and rating on whatever platform you do listen to your podcasts on. It will really help me out. If you're on social media and you're not following me, I am available on Facebook and Instagram under the same name, which is dark underscore and underscore spooky. 666. If you're on Facebook, if you can, please leave me a star rating and a review over there. It will really just help me get seen with the Facebook algorithm. Don't forget the book club is coming soon and is available to all of listeners. So if it is something that you think that you are interested in and want to get involved, also please message me. It'll be £6.66 a month where we will meet online up to three times a week 
8 till 10 p.m. UK English time. We will all read the same book and participate and then just obviously discuss what we've gone over. The first two months have been decided, but then after that, once we are in a rhythm, we will then all decide together the following months. All that's left to say, stay spooky and I'll see you on the next one. Thank you.